This, this, this is a Tape Deck Podcast. Hey everybody, it's H, and welcome to the latest installment of Dune Pod, your one-stop shop to get ready for the new Dune movie, or just talk about great movies if you don't care about Dune. This week, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host Jason. Ridley Scott, you're a hack. You should have listened to the producers, put the happy ending back in, put the voiceover back in. Wow. He's not a robot. Yeah, let's do it. And by the co-founder and CTO of Slack, Cal Henderson. I mean, it seems unlikely that they would get planning permission for that kind of level of housing in San Francisco in the next hundred years. On this episode, we complete our Ridley Scott doubleheader with his 1982 masterpiece, the greatest science fiction film of all time, question mark, Blade Runner. We cover the power of production design, debate whether Deckard is a replicant again, and make the biggest announcement in show history. If you're enjoying the show, check out our Discord server where you can hang out with us whenever you want. And now, without further ado, Blade Runner. Cal Henderson, how you doing, buddy? Welcome back. It's good to see you. Hey, I'm doing good. It's good to be back. Has that movie come out yet? The Dune one? Uh, I don't know. What's the deal with that? Jason, have you heard anything about it? I just saw a thing before we started recording that no. Venom, that no, seriously, that Venom, which is supposed to come out the week oh, before, yeah. is probably getting pushed back. So who could say? We're just going to be, I love it. It's waiting for Godot, the podcast. It's the best thing that's ever happened. I'm quite excited about the the new Venom movie, uh, Carnage. Yeah. That looks pretty good. It looks pretty good. I was a fan of the first one. I know not a whole lot of people were. Yeah. I didn't see it, but people said it was absolutely bananas and that Tom Hardy's performance was actually just really fun and over the top. Yeah, I'd say that was accurate. I like movies set in, you know, San Francisco as well. Mm. And it felt very San Francisco, not like... Planet of the Apes that kind of messes with the geography a lot, but it just felt actually in San Francisco. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The nuclear power plant in Marin County. I was personally a a big fan of that was pretty cool. (laughs) You didn't know about that. Yeah. uh, Exactly. It's it's big local news. (laughs) Well, we are super stoked, Cal, to have you. And we decided with season four, I will just say with season four, we decided we were going to kick it up a notch and we were going to, you know, basically go for the big ones, the big ones. And if you think about movies that had an impact on us, on culture, on science fiction, and ultimately around Dune, there is one film that is at the top of the heap. And so we started last week with Ridley Scott for this two-parter. And this week, it is literally the the big one. It is Blade Runner. Man, what a movie. Yeah, it's it's it really is it really is the movie on top of the well lit ziggurat in the middle of futuristic Los Angeles. Mm. It's it's a very the very pinnacle of that pyramid. Yeah, yeah, and we're gonna get into it in the in the bottom of the hour. We have a little bit of business we have to take care of, but I just do want to call out so folks, you know, we get we get some heat sometimes. Jason, I don't know if you've seen this before, but we take some heat sometimes. Like, you know, is this podcast really about dune does it you know are you just like clickbaiting us when you post this in the reddit and this is about dune we love dune we think about it all the time uh we obsess about it but this one is actually even more special because in 1976 dino de Laurentiis got the rights to dune 
He purchased them from the Gibbons Consortium who had been working with Jodorowsky and he hired Herbert to write a new screenplay in 78, which was 175 pages long. And in 79, De Laurentiis hired Ridley Scott to make Dune. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that connection, Dune Reddit? <laughs> you think this podcast has no plan? This podcast is well-planned. <laughs> yeah, it's real. Cal, how much time do you spend on Reddit? T- uh, too much, but, you know, mostly just looking at the memes. Yeah, what is yeah. your favorite? What's your favorite subreddit? Oh, right now, it's probably Minecraft builds because I'm back into playing Minecraft with my with my oh, that's uh, nice. with my seven year old, mm. and so yeah, get an inspiration. Seven Minecraft Minecraft got wild. Incidentally, this is a tangent, but like I, I see these like videos on TikTok occasionally of people who are like building you know replicators and shit in mm. in Minecraft. It's it is wild what you can do in there nowadays. Mm. It moved on a lot over the last few years, and uh, those kind of they they call them technical players, the yeah. uh, the people who figure out how to do the crazy machines. That's pretty great. Mm, it's a different game. Yeah, I just thought it was about whacking trees. <laughs> I was into the whack and tree version. I wasn't into this like building supercomputers for a long time. You know? You've been that way. That's that's like you're known for that. <laughs> yeah, I'm known for a tr- as a tweet a tree whacker, a tree whacker, a tweet yeah, whacker, tree, tree whacker. Yeah, sure. yeah. All right, so so back to back to Blade Runner and Ridley Scott. So he was hired to do Dune. He was in active development on it, was working on scripts. I was attracted to Dune because it was beyond what I'd done on Alien, which was kind of hardcore, kind of horror film. Um, and uh, Dune would be a step very strongly, very, very strongly in the direction of Star Wars. And then tragically, his brother died of cancer. Uh. And he realized that he was not going to be in a position to be able to tackle all of the development and the work that was going to be needed for Dune. So he dropped out and stepped away, which then obviously cleared it for David Lynch to come in and and make an amazing movie. Yep. (laughs) It all worked out. It all worked out great, especially for us. Yeah. So we'll be getting into Blade Runner. We'll be getting into Ridley uh, just around the corner next week. I'm pretty excited about this. I will say this film is, is you know, also extremely formative for me. Mm-hmm. In the 80s, as a huge Star Trek fan, uh, there was kind of the definitive second generation of Star Trek movies featuring the original cast. And that is the film we are going to take, arguably the best of the series, Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home. Star Trek Four. Has anyone ever just started on the fourth episode of a movie series? Yes. I mean, like, what a what a great place to just like pick up. <laughs> why are we Why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? Well, it's a San Francisco movie. Okay. <laughs> uh, it involves, uh, not to spoil it for people who haven't seen Star Trek Four: A Voyage Home, but it involves cat for, capturing whales in the belly of a ship. And in doing so, anticipates Chapter House Dune, in which they capture a worm in the belly of a ship uh, in order to preserve the ecology of the future. Deep pull. So it's entirely planned. Like everything we do, it's very well planned. That's right. But it's it's also a favorite film of our special guest for next week. Yes, please introduce our special guest for next week. Our special guest for next week, the first of many exciting announcements uh, tonight, is uh, Biz Stone, co-founder of Twitter. Boom. 
who will be here to talk about to talk about Star Trek Four. This is Founders Month. Founders Month on Dune Pod. Yeah, I'll spoil for you in advance that he does a really amazing uh, transparent aluminum uh, <laughs> impression, uh, and so you'll want to turn in. You'll want to tune in for that. Nuclear vessels. Vessels. Yeah. yeah, you'll get it all. You'll get it all. Computer. There's a lot of good. Yeah, there's a lot of good material in here. Yeah. Uh, so we are very excited about that. Biz, welcome finally uh, coming on. I cannot wait to hear the stories of Jason as a young product, uh, you know, lead charting the course of the internet for all humans. Like M- more importantly, Biz and I once visited the Star Trek Experience, which no longer Whoa. exists. It used to be a museum in Vegas. In Vegas, yeah. And so that Biz and I went there uh, for a bachelor party <laughs> during a bachelor party. We took time out to go there we'll be right um, back and so he'll be able to tell you about that okay perfect sounds good well we're, we're super stoked for that so so next week star trek four the voyage home and listen let's just get with there's it's too big the the news that we have is yeah. too big uh including yeah. the biggest announcement we have ever had so let's get into dune news would you like to know more i can't wait you gotta say you gotta say dune news jason Oh yeah, I gotta say, dude. I I'm like too excited. I can't even say dude news, but I'll say it. Dude news. Do 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 do. Okay, very good. So let's start with the first one. We thought this was going to be the big news right here. We thought this was going to be huge. Denny Villeneuve was quoted oh, yeah. in an interview in Il Venerdì di Repubblica uh-huh. as saying that Chani, not Paul, is the protagonist for Dune Two. That is a big piece of news. We're not entirely sure what that means. Let me read it. Okay, you go ahead and read it. In the original Italian, please. Yes, this is translated by Johnny Sobchak, uh, our man yeah. on the street who's keeping it real. Right. It says, I'm honored to present two such explosive talents on screen, and I can't wait to shoot the second part of Dune to have them back together, knowing that in the next chapter, Zendaya will be the star of the story. Yeah. Wow. The star, or like the hero. It depends on the translation you look at. Oh. Is there controversy on the translation? Yes, there's controversy <laughs> in Italian dune circles. You go to Reddit, Italian, La Duna. <laughs> no, they, like, I think I what our speculation is, is that this may mean that, well, he's given other quotes in there about how he wanted to center more of the women characters in the story. And so that's like one piece. Thank you. And then thing two is, I think in part two, you could imagine that Paul maybe is in the the spice trance for some part of the story and that Chani mm. kind of picks up part of the Fremen, you know, becomes the Fremen point of view uh, as they wage their guerrilla war against the Harkonnen. So I, that's my that's my interpretation of what's going on there. Cal, what's your take? <laughs> I have no idea, honestly. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. But the, uh, no, I don't know. <laughs> good. <laughs> Good. That works. Uh, you are not on the hook for anything. That that's uh, that that's just an option if you if you want to have it. So, uh, but not people to- have people have been losing their shit. Like people are saying that they're going to change the story and it's not going to be Paul. It's going to be Chani. Like they're going to shift the whole thing. It's like that is not happening. That is not what Denny is doing. But I think this is going to be a really great adaptation. And again, we already saw the role of Chani being expanded in the first 10 minutes of the film. Right. And so in a real smart way, we won't get into the details of it, but it's it's an excellent, uh, I think, tuning that, that is happening. So we're stoked. And not to, not to further delay other big news, but there was another Denny Villeneuve controversy this week. Oh, please. Uh, or just, yes. just today. So he gave this quote 
And what you said, first of all, the enemy of the cinema <laughs> is the pandemic. That's the thing. We understand that the cinema industry is under tremendous pressure right now that I get. But then he said, this is the important part. To watch Dune on a television is the best way I can compare it is to drive a speedboat in your bathtub. For me, it's ridiculous. So he's very upset about the streaming thing still. And, you know, that's just going to be what it's going to be because it's going gonna, it's gonna to stream. Does Denny have a speedboat is my first question. Uh, and how big is his bath? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Second question. <laughs> if, you just make, if you just make the bath big enough, yeah. the movie will look great. I do want to go on record of saying I think Denny is completely committed to this film. He's committed to the idea of cinema. I think it's absolutely absurd to think that people can't really enjoy films at home. Um, many people watch every movie they've ever seen, uh, you know, at home and all of the best movies they've ever seen, they watch them at home. So it's like, it's fine. People should see it in the theater. If they have an opportunity, like if you get an opportunity to see Dune in the theater, especially if you get the opportunity to see it in IMAX, mm-hmm. you should probably do that. You should probably do that. Yeah. All right. So uh, next piece of Dune news, I've hit my saturation point on new images and video. Okay. Like I can't ha- just generally you're going to blind yourself until I, no, October? I just like, I can't like absorb it and enjoy it and get excited about it in the way that I was in the same way. Like, I just feel like I'm seeing so much of it now. So I'm just calling that out. We did get this week, some behind the scenes leaked images from the art and soul of Dune uh-huh. from our Fedekin warriors. And there was some wild stuff in there. So I was pretty into it. But you just said you weren't into it. You're a liar. It's, I think you're. Okay. I think you're. You're. You're falling apart like Hal Nine Thousand in two thousand and one because you're trying to be duplicitous with our audience by 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 holding out, and it's and it's and your hat brim is too flat, and there's just generally it's just it's just a lot's happening for you right now. I'm conflicted. I think we just need to. I think we need to get to the Keep big moving. news before before you start sweating milk. Okay. At what point is it just going to spoil your enjoyment of the movie when it does come out? You know, do you do you feel like there's a, a limit there to how much you're going to know about it before you go into it? I didn't read the script. So Jason and I got the script last year. I think Jason flipped through it a little bit. I yeah. started the very first page and I immediately turned it off. And I was happy to see that ultimately that script was not what was, that opening was not what they used. So, I mean, obviously I've read the book a million times. I know already most of the stuff that's in there, but I, I think it's going to be, it's going to be fine. I feel like some of the best movies, best movie-going experiences I've had is when I go in with pretty much zero, you know, pre-information about uh, about what the movie's going to contain, you know, sometimes even who's going to be in it. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Those are magic moments for sure. That's just not an option for me. <laughs> yeah. For this, I am legally obligated to watch all this shit. So, so yeah, I, I, I will yeah, we will, we'll get sued by Tape Deck if we don't if we don't stay up to date. So yeah, that's understandable. They have, to, they have a lean against our children. So every week we have our live recordings that we do in our Discord. We have friends that join along. The people are chatting right now and we're able to respond. Also, people can hang out with us whenever they want, post links and stuff. It's just a really great community of people. This week, Jason, listen to this. This week, new Discord members since last Wednesday. Okay, all right. Tim, 24 frames. Michael Sippy. Mm Mm-hmm. Anthony Ayupi. Jarrett Gets Games, who's been a listener since episode four, Arrival, all the way back. Noble, a listener since episode one. Autogoff. <laughs> and Crash Fodder. Mm-hmm. Holy moly. That's a lot of people. Also, there was a bug on our Discord this week where 
Uh, some people were unable to post <laughs> after joining, so that's a good welcome. Mm. Join our Discord, and maybe you won't be able. Uh, maybe you won't be able to join in. Who knows? Did you mention uh, Wan Man? Did you say Wan Man? And Wan Man, Wan Man. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Okay, that was close. So welcome everybody. Thank you for joining, especially everybody here who was here with us live tonight. Uh, we have a great time, and we really enjoy that. Jason, do we have any other news? We have one other piece of news. Oh, please go ahead. No, I think you should. I think you should do it, Matt. I think you should do the news. You're 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 you're, you're the captain of this ship. So listen, um, you know, we asked for tickets to go to TIFF. <laughs> and by ask for tickets to go to TIFF, Matt just would randomly accost people uh, who he thought might be Canadian on the street and ask them if he could get invited to go to Toronto, the Toronto Film Festival. This is yes, yelling at catcher. Come on, catcher, yeah. get us some goddamn tickets. Um, so, so we didn't get into TIFF. We didn't get into the Venice Film Festival. I haven't heard anything about um, you know getting to a, a Hollywood premiere. So we decided in typical, you know, crisis, you got to rise to it. Yeah. And so we decided, F it, we are hosting our own exclusive opening night private IMAX screening in San Francisco. We have all 430 seats booked. We have the entire theater booked. This is just us, our friends, and we are going to make this happen. Yep. We are going to invite everyone we've ever done the show with, the folks that we hang out in Discord with. We are going to invite the Dune Pod family uh, to come watch the Dune premiere with us in San Francisco, in IMAX, on October 21st, before most of the world can even see it. The Dune Pod premiere of Dune. <laughs> the Dune. Dune 2021. Yes, of Dune 2021. Yeah, we're not showing we're not showing the David Lynch Dune. It's not like a bait and switch. I think people have already seen that one. To be fair, yeah, that wouldn't really be much of a premiere. You're gonna fly to San Francisco, and it's like a screening of like a VHS copy of the Sci-Fi <laughs> Channel, like Dune right? with William Hurt. The whole thing It'd be wild. That's right. So, so Brian Mosley calling out in chat that he has already booked his tickets because there might have been a leak before this uh, before this recording. So, Cal, I'll give you the opportunity to be the first person outside of Brian to officially confirm if you would like one of those tickets. Uh, obviously, <laughs> all of our all of our hosts who have joined us will be welcome. Yes, we'll be invited. Yes, yeah, count me in. I'll be there. This is gonna be incredible. This is for, this is one of the largest IMAX screens and theaters in the United States. And it is a truly incredible venue. So we're super stoked. It's going to be seven o'clock. We'll watch it and then we'll go home and record and watch on HBO Max and, uh, you know, generally freak out. So um, stay tuned for details on how it's going to work, how you can join us. This is a free event. Anyone who wants to come can come for free. It's going to be must be must be vaccinated. That's, that's Definitely. The only, yes. Because the only reason we're doing this is because we don't want to catch COVID to go see the <laughs> premiere of Dude. Also, the fact that we're doing this and have like committed to do this with AMC definitely means that the movie's going to be postponed 100%. We've like guaranteed <laughs> that the movie's going to be postponed now. So sorry for that in advance. Good luck. Thanks. All right. Well, Shall we get into Blade Runner? Oh my God! Now we got to talk about Blade Runner. I'm a, I've, I feel so emotional already. <laughs> okay, let's do it. All right, here we go. Blade Runner is a battle for freedom in a dark future. Rick Deckard is reactivated to his old Blade Runner police unit to hunt and terminate 
or more euphemistically retire, a group of murderous Nexus 6 replicants who have escaped the offward colonies and returned to Los Angeles. These biomechanoids, Leon, Roy, Zora, and Pris, endowed with incredible strength and nearly impervious to pain, will stop at nothing to find a way to extend their lifespans. Deckard has drawn down a path of investigation that leads him from dark and seedy alleyways to the pinnacles of power atop the Tyrell Corporation's pyramids. Along the way, he will meet Tyrell's stunning niece, Rachel, herself a Nexus replicant struggling to accept what she is. Will Deckard survive long enough to complete his mission and retire these machines, or will he be forced to question his own reality and duty as a Blade Runner? Oh, so good. That's great. Art Art was hoping that the synopsis would end with, or will he run the blades? Which I think would have been, which I think would have been amazing. But I like what you chose instead. That's fine. Thank you. I'm a purist. I also noticed what you put in there with the reactivated. We know we know what you're doing. And you're you think you're you think you're clever, but we see what you're doing. Do we know who came up with the title? Uh, like, because it is kind of nonsensical. Yeah, it's actually based on a William S. Burroughs novel called Blade Runner. And it was, I, I, I think it might have been Hampton Fancher, the original scriptwriter or one of the producers who requested to, to Burroughs that they use it and he allowed them to do so. Hmm. Oh, so nice. That's great. What a champ. It was originally titled Dangerous Days. And so let's just do a little bit of behind the scenes here stuff. So, so... Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, Philip K. Dick, one of his classic films. And this was a time before any of his movies had ever been made. And since, you know, between Minority Report and Total Recall and uh, and Blade Runner and, and many others, you know, he's become one of the most translated uh, authors out there. And a guy named Hampton Fancher basically created a script that was the essence of this film. But the entire movie took place like inside like his apartment. Like nothing happened. It's like this tiny little small movie. And after Ridley was hired, he basically took it, expanded it way out, and then ultimately took Fancher off and brought in David Peoples to be his personal writer so that they could rework it and get to where they wanted it to be. Hampton Fancher is just an amazing name, by the way. Like they should have called the movie that. Like just, (laughs) just, or will he Hampton the Fancher? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> totally. So, Cal, what was your experience? Like, when did you first watch Blade Runner? That's hard to... It was a long time ago. Um, you know, it's a very formative movie for me. It came out in, what, 81? 82. 82, yeah. So uh, I didn't watch it when it came out on account of me, you know, being a toddler, mm. but did watch it later. And uh, almost certainly when I watched it the first time, I didn't didn't get it in the way that I have watching it since. It's a movie I've seen a lot of times in a bunch of the different versions, mm-hmm. um, which I'm sure we will discuss. Mm-hmm. When you look at the, the kind of visuals, it is, for the time at which it was made, it is still a really enduring image of the future, that it's... Obviously, there's been a lot of things that were derivative of it since and used that kind of uh, view of L.A. Mm. in the future. But it feels, it still feels super modern. If you strip out Atari, you know, it feels like a possible vision of the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, so so few things in it aged poorly. It's now an alternate history, right? Like it's like it is 2019. So it's become this like what if history or if the past had developed in a different way or developed more quickly. 
Yeah, uh, and I guess uh, maybe it's still going to be our 2019, uh, you know, when society collapses and we, we lose track of the calendar. Mm. So maybe it's still a, a plausible future. Yeah. Mm. Something to look forward to. Jason, how about you? They've got good noodles still. Um, I, <laughs> noodles are great. I don't remember, like, I, I saw this on, uh, like, Saturday afternoon television in, in St. Louis, like, Channel 11 in St. Louis used to show afternoon movies, and this was definitely one of the TV cuts was on there, and then, you know, we had it on VHS as a kid, because, as mentioned before, my, my dad had a, a, a VHS store, a video rental place, and so I just had seen it a bunch, like, as a young child, and, yeah, it was just... I, I, you know, was just totally obsessed by it. There's, there's scenes in the movie and things in the movie that I just, you know, had never encountered before. And, you know, all the things that Sakal said in terms of it being uh, visually this language that just informed the rest of cinema. I think it, I think the comparison to 2001 is apt because it just had that kind of like, this is what this, this is what this kind of movie looks like. And everyone's mm. like, oh, okay, cool. I'll do that. Mm. Yeah. So, has always just been a part of my life. It's so much so that when I was rewatching for this pod, like just from the opening, I, I have this like Pavlovian response of just like, yes, this is coming home for me. For for me, like even from the Alan La- from the Lad Corporation logo, the green tree scrolling across, yeah, um, like that immediately locks me in. And then when the the big drum, uh, you know, for the for the opening scrawl happens, mm-hmm. you know, I am viscerally viscerally affected. Um, so same thing. I watch this on video um, many times as a kid, and then I realize now in '92 that was when I moved to San Francisco. And I think I saw it in Berkeley, the director's cut. Yeah. And was like, holy shit, you have completely changed the entire meaning of this film with 24 seconds. You're like, you're a genius and this is the greatest thing that's ever happened. And just continued to watch it so many times uh, through my life. I love, love, love this film. Yeah, I guess, I mean, we'll talk about that with the different versions. I definitely, like, my overall impression, I was trying to go into this one a little bit more fresh, I guess, than some of our other movies where I I do a lot of, like, obsessive, like, comparison of what's in the cut versus and how it's changed. Because I wanted to see if I could, like, see it somewhat afresh. And, like, my overall impression, I guess, is, like, that a lot of that different version stuff just doesn't really matter. Like the genius of the genius of the movie is like the way it looks and the vibe of the movie. And it's just so all of that is just so timeless that like some of the narrative differences are just not super like religious to me at this point. I'll, I'll, I'll disagree there. I think the, uh, do it, get him, Cal, get his ass. (laughs) There is yet to be a really good cut of this movie. Okay. What? And I feel like the you know there there will be a a perfect cut in the future that somewhere between the original theatrical release and the director's cut or the you know uh, the wow. final cut whatever the current wow. one is like this he should not be a replicant in it it doesn't make sense so much yeah. of the rest of the whoa, movie doesn't hang together whoa. correctly whoa the podcast the podcast is falling apart it was a good run yeah no I. I actually, I actually respect that point of view. In the, the hey, he shouldn't be a replicant I, point of view. Let's, let's, we'll have it. I, I definitely want to have this, this debate. Like we, we have to do okay, it. We have to, we have to warm up to it. Is what you're saying? Yeah. Let's, let's. You have to ease into it. We can't just jump in the bathtub. Jesus. All right. 
I didn't see it coming. I'll tell you that. Like, uh, and, and, and when paper keg did blade runner, uh, many years ago, I was shocked that the hosts did not believe, uh, you know, slim and Dale Jonesy, none of them. Oh yeah. No Dale's in the discord. He's mad already. None of them believed that Deckard was a replicant. It just pissed me off. So, so we'll, we'll get into it for the record. We did watch for this podcast. We will be discussing primarily, the final cut, right. which in my mind, the differences between the director's cut and the final cut are, are very minor. Like, it doesn't really matter that much. But all right, well, why don't we get into this and let's get started. We've talked about this for Dune many times. Like, the amount of exposition you generally need is like a pain in the ass in science fiction films. And I feel like the scrawl does such a great job and the music is so intense and ominous. Like, it's a really fantastic job of conveying what replicants are and, and what it means and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, I think I think like it's funny. I was watching with Crystal, who's who's seen the movie before, um, but like, uh, you know, like like if you're coming into it fresh, like the, I think the opening scrawl can can be a little like, well, this seems goofy. Like this is like kind of very, it seems very serious. Like from mm. you're like, oh, this is like some be some serious shit. But like it's called Blade Runner. Like that seems kind of weird. Like there's just parts of it that seem a little absurd, like on its face, mm. but. Um, but yeah, I do think it does a decent. I do. I, I to me, it means that you don't need the voiceover right. that is in the theatrical. Mm. Cal, are you a voiceover defender in addition to a Deckard as a human defender? Okay. No, 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 no. The you know the perfect version of the movie for me would basically be the theatrical cut, but without the terrible voiceovers. Okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. And there's the whole was he doing it badly on purpose? which it seemed like he really was, but then has denied since. But Harrison Ford is not an amazing actor. Right. Mm. Like, he's been in many amazing movies, you know. Uh, he's not an amazing actor, especially playing this character. Mm-hmm. But he's not that bad. Like, the voiceover just sounds so disinterested. This is covered in the, in the what's it called, Dangerous Days, uh, the documentary, three and a half hours making up documentary, which I watched. And they had many different takes on the voiceover work. Ridley was involved for a bunch of them and they were going back and forth and it was really tough. And when they were out of time and it was all done and it was the last day, Harrison was in England by himself with one guy working through it. And I think he was just kind of frustrated to get it done. He wasn't trying to sabotage it, but he was definitely frustrated. You could tell that. And yeah. it, it seems like through this entire production, that was sort of like a running theme. Harrison was frustrated with Sean. Harrison was frustrated with Ridley. Like it was it was a tough, a tough production for him. Well, Harrison Ford doesn't really like showing up to work very much. He doesn't really <laughs> enjoy the the doing the acting part of being an actor. It seems. Can I wear a t-shirt? <laughs> Can I just like why do I Yeah, I'm just I'm showing up in this. I'm gonna fly my plane in, I'm gonna do my lines. <laughs> I'm going to get out. I'm going to look good doing it. Cut the check. You know, he didn't have a lot to work with for the voiceover script either. You know, it's... Uh, mm. Yeah. It's it's not it's not amazing work. Mm. Yeah. No, it's right. It's not great. All right. Well, so, but we do have very quickly, uh, you know, with when once we open up with Los Angeles, you know, they are flexing big time. Mm-hmm. You have Douglas Trumbull, who did the special effects for 2001, doing the special effects here. The team that he assembled was incredible. And one of the things they called out is there are only 50 shots in this movie. There are only 50 special effects shots. There are not that many, but they compared to Star Wars or others that had hundreds, but it was so well done and so tightly integrated and so completely believable and visceral that it really affected everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. Are they also longer shots or does it just feel that way? Mm. Doesn't, you know, feels like we have long panning, you know, uh, track shots of the, of the miniatures at the beginning that uh, set the stage slowly with fewer shots. I think there is, there's, I don't know if in the beginning, but there's definitely some stuff where they, in the final cut, one of the things they did was extend a little bit. Like a few scenes are just like, there's a little bit more padding in them. Mm. And so it does feel like it has a bit more space to breathe, I think. Yeah. Not, not talking about the most padded scene, maybe of any movie ever, which I'm sure we'll get to. Mm. Oh man, I can't wait. Enhance. I, I have my padding that, I, that I'm worried about, but. You mean shoulder pads. You <laughs> <laughs> mean Sean Young's shoulder pads. <laughs> That's accurate too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> One detail I love about the, the landscape is the fact that a million people live and work in Tyrell's pyramid. Oh, that's a good one. I didn't know that. Like just the scope. Have you done the math on that? Does that make sense? It's in the background. Somebody, whatever, it's, it, I've, I've read articles about it or whatever. So like, is there going to be a Salesforce tower, Cal, that will be, you know, basically the size of San Francisco? Yeah, that's more people than live in San Francisco, right? <laughs> so, I mean, it seems unlikely that they would get planning permission for that kind of level of housing in San Francisco in the next hundred years. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, okay, yeah, maybe in LA. Fair point. That's a lot of upzoning. <laughs> For sure. I, well, I mean, it's amazing that Ridley Scott was able to get like a million extras to fill that pyramid too. So like, good work That's on good point. Uh, good the point. second AD for that. So let's talk about Leon and the Voight-Kampf test. Yeah. Because it is a punch in the face. It's a punch in the face for the film, to, the way that it opens here. It's very strong. The tortoise lays on its back, its belly baking in the hot sun, beating its legs, trying to turn itself over, but it can't. Not without your help. But you're not helping. What do you mean I'm not helping? I mean, you're not helping. Why is that, Leon? There's there's two things I noticed about watching this this time. One is I really like the way it's filmed. I like that it starts in this, like, long shot of, what, Holden? That's the other guy's name? Yeah, Holden. And, like, it slowly pushes in on them over the course of the scene. Like, as he's administering the test, it gets closer and closer on Holden and on Leon. And I really I really like the way that they build the tension of the scene by doing that. Describe in single words only the good things that come into your mind about your mother. Your mother? Yeah. Let me tell you about my mother. Also, just like everything just looks amazing. Uh, the Voight-Kampf machine just is immediately compelling. You, you know, having seen the movie a billion times, it's compelling. I think having, you know, if you've not seen the movie, you're just like, what the hell is going on with that machine? All the stuff that, the dialogue that Holden has to give, like the stuff with the tortoise. I mean, there's a reason why those samples are so iconic is because it immediately draws you in even more than like the even more than like the vo- the scroll it establishes like this future that you're you just want to know more about you just want to know like what the hell is what's going on here like even if you didn't have the scroll you'd be drawn in by what's happening in that one scene it is such a powerful scene uh that i think it kind of overrides the fact that it doesn't make any sense like from a story point of view it's nonsensical like, why would you not just make machines so that you could, you know, point a scanner at them and say, yep, replicant. <laughs> yeah. Like, if this is a problem, you know, that the, they've had to create a, a police department to deal with, you'd just do it more straightforwardly. Um, but it makes for great cinema. Uh, I don't uh, Well, I mean, this, this speaks to the concept of, you know, the power that's being wielded by corporate America, right? Like, the, Tyrell's been able to lobby to avoid that kind of regulation. Yeah. 
That's a good point. They could get away with it. So I think it's an, indi- an indictment. It also goes to a point that you get just to tie it back to Dune to further push back on our haters. Like it goes to this point, which is like if you build synthetic beings that are meant to imitate humans, if you do your job good enough, not only do they fool the humans, but they end up fooling themselves. And then mm. you really kind of have a problem. Face dancers. Which is a theme in the, yeah, it's a theme in the latter Dune books with the face dancers mm. who become undetectable in some way because they truly believe that they are the people they're imitating. This is. Obviously the case for Rachel, but the, you know, the right. four escaped replicants very much know they're replicants. They do. Yeah. They right. do. But yeah. that's the thing. They're Nexus 6 and she's Nexus 7. Yeah. Yeah. Is the implication that, you know, the kind of off-world slaves of the next model would not know that they're, they would just think they were human slaves? Hmm. Is that better? This is like, yeah, and so like this is like what in Blade Runner 2049, they're like, okay, well, we're never doing that again. Like the replicants that we build are going to explicitly know that they're replicants for, and like we're just going to have like tight controls on them, mm. which also doesn't work. But yeah, that's the that's like sort of where the, the sequel picks up the story. Yeah. Mm. So we cut from there, from from the Voight Comp test and, and uh, you know, Leon uh, taking out Holden to Deckard sitting, waiting to get his noodles in the rain. And I think I said this when we talked about Blade Runner 2049, but for me, the notion that I always loved is the idea that some technicians like basically put Deckard in position. They'd given him his previous memories. They'd activated him that he's an old Blade Runner and that he's coming back out of retirement. They basically set everything in motion and they're doing this big Kabuki show. And so this is the, this is the start in our introduction to him as well as to Gaff. So go ahead, Cal. This, so one, I think one of the core reasons why that story doesn't make sense, you know, the premise that he's just been activated as a replicant is, you know, when you think about the Roy Batty character um, or Pris, they are like the high-end combat models, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why on earth wouldn't they use a combat model for Deckard if he was a replicant? Why wouldn't they make his job plausible and easy? Mm. And instead, he's just like some old dude getting beaten up by machines. Mm. We go for we go for a rebuttal to H. No, I mean like look at how everything turned out. <laughs> everything worked out. Everything worked out largely right. I mean there were a few, a few casualties. <laughs> oh my god! But that's not because of anything Decker did. Like if, no, of course. The, he- I think that's one of the challenges of the movie, of the plot of the movie. It's still a great movie. Is that if he wasn't in it, it would have still been the same outcome. Just nobody would have been there to hear Roger Howard's like amazing lines at the end. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know about that. I, I so so let's keep let's keep going. I'm gonna I'm gonna work I'm gonna work through this uh, as as we, as we get there. Uh, yeah, work through work through work through the pain. <laughs> Just keep, keep, keep shake it off, shake that one off. All right. So how about how about the this you know? So they get to headquarters and we have M Emmett Walsh as Bryant. I love him in, in yes. this in this movie. Love seeing M Emmett Walsh. He's great in he's great in raising Arizona. Hmm. Walking down nine miles. That's Bill Parker, you understand? He's got his sandwich in one hand and the fucking head in the other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he's uh he's got a dope lamp on his table in the scene. That's yes. got like weird western scenes on it. I noticed that. I was noticing a lot of like the set design this time around because it is so very like specific and weird like there's so many weird textures of like blocks and walls and the things on lamps and the things on desks it's all this weird blocky organic but like also like cold shit really really good stuff love that stuff 
Also, every bit of dialogue that he says is incredible. Yeah. I need you, Dex. This is a bad one. The worst yet. I need the old Blade Runner. I need your magic. You squid when I come in here, Brian. I'm twice as quit now. Stop right where you are. You know the score, pal? You're not cop, you're little people. Yeah. And then he begins describing the replicants. And so, Leon, he could lift 400-pound atomic loads all day long. It's funny, like, the stuff that they throw in, like, of, like, <laughs> atomic loads and sea beams glittering, and you're just like, what the <laughs> hell does any of that shit mean? Doesn't mean anything. That, but that's so good, right? Like, it's uh, yeah. it's not meant supposed to mean anything. It's evocative. Zora's on a... Trained for... A- Off-world kick Kick murder murder squad. (laughs) What is a kick? Does what is it? What is the kick modifying in murder squad? Does that mean they kill people by kicking? Is it like an honor death kill? Yeah. (laughs) What does the kicking mean? Or does it mean like I don't know? No, I think the kicking means something different to everyone, and that's what's beautiful about it. That is exactly. Mm. So I, I just think I think his performance there is great and sort of setting things up. Although I did notice tonight in in rewatching it. They give the exposition twice. The fact that there was they they got a shuttle, they killed everybody, and then they and they came and they uh, landed. So that was kind of that that could have been tightened up uh, just a little bit. Yeah, that bit's kind of an important exposition though, because without that, you kind of feel sorry for m- more sorry for them than you do later. You know? Yeah, they don't really do anything bad on screen. Yeah, right. That's true. They kill a lot. Of, they kill a lot of people. Not a lot. I guess they killed James Hong off screen, but yeah. They're, they're they're definitely killing they're definitely killing folks. Yeah, you don't you don't see a lot of that, right? Though that's true. They're killing people who deserve to die. Yeah, they're killing people who are trying to kill them. Yeah, you know what would you do in this situation? Well, no, this is the yeah. this is this is the the point of the film. <laughs> All right, so so Deckard is told that there's a Nexus Six over at Tyrell and to go put the test on her, put the machine on her, and uh, and so this is the introduction of Rachel. Do you like our owl? It's artificial. Of course it is. I can't be impartial here. Somebody else talk about Rachel. Oh, I thought you were gonna play a sample or something. I was oh, like, I'm, gonna. I was ready. I'm definitely I was, gonna. I don't know what. I don't know why. I was like expecting to see Rachel. Well, first of all, I mean, like, look, <laughs> just up there with up there with Jessica from the Lynch Dune. One of the most amazing hairstyles in the history of 80s cinema. I mean, just. An unbelievable hairstyle. Two, two of the best. She has two because when she lets it down, you like yeah. that. You like that too. Yeah, very much. Also, just great wardrobe throughout. Like amazing coats, amazing shoulder pads, phenomenal makeup. She gives a tremendous performance, doing both like steely, like she's like quickly established as like uh, equal to Deckard, like can fend him off, like she's hard to catch. But then you know when she finds out the reality of her situation is you know is like shattered and vulnerable in a way that's like compelling and she's just great just absolutely a phenomenal performance a really one of the great great things about the movie yeah so that's definitely true with the exception of the complete lack of any chemistry between her and harrison ford mm. yeah well what are you gonna do <laughs> i mean you know harrison ford didn't want to be there so he's not gonna he doesn't have you time know. So they hated each other, right? That was the thing. Yep. Like they didn't, they didn't like each other. I don't think it was that they that they hated each other. I think it was the fact that she was very inexperienced and extremely young. And so this is similar to casting uh, Sigourney 
in Alien, a lot of the behind the scenes talked about how he, Ridley, was constantly tearing into Sigourney and also having like Yafet Koto in the scene where he's yelling at her about, you know, she wants to do Dallas's plan and he's like, I'm for killing that goddamn thing right now. Okay. Well, let's talk about killing it. We know it's using the air shafts. Will you listen to me, Parker? Shut up! Let's hear it. Let's hear it. That was Ridley pushing Yafet to push Sigourney. And here, you can see in the behind the scenes, she is like a really fun and outgoing and energetic and very quirky human being. Yeah. And her performance is so flat. Yeah. And I love it. Like, I love, it's so restrained. It's so tight. And then she was also under a lot of pressure. So, I don't know. I just think she's amazing. You know, I mean, and also it should just be said, as we talked about in the Batman episode, like, Sean Young had a pretty rough like was was not treated well by Hollywood like during her career so mm. not great all of the the Voight Kampf test that they're doing Jason you talked about her kind of going toe to toe with him the smoke this is the other thing for me through this movie the cigarette smoke and the lighting through the cigarette smoke and they're back and forth through this Voight Kampf test you're watching television suddenly you realize there's a wasp crawling on your arm I'd kill it You're reading a magazine. You come across a full-page nude photo of a girl. Is this testing whether I'm a replicant or a lesbian, Mr. Deckard? Just answer the questions, please. Feels very like a 40s noir scene. Yeah. I also love the way that he shoots, like, the eyeballs um, so that you get, like, the weird cat eye. Like, you know, you get the glow off the back of the retina Mm -hmm. a lot of the time. I love that. I don't know how they do that cinematically, um, but it looks dope as hell. Mm. To establish who's a replicant and who's not a replicant. Yes, but, I mean, it just looks really cool. That's right. It looks cool when when Deckard has that in his eyes, yeah. So in Leon's apartment, we have the photos, we have the scale. This is a bit of... So, Cal, your take on this as a film noir and kind of investigating component. I think that each time I've watched that scene, it has somehow gotten longer as well. Because it's, what, it's <laughs> three. It's uh, now, like, three hours in the middle of the movie. Um, um, was... Was is is this movie is that scene to blame uh, for the kind of CSI you know enhance oh, yeah. uh, kind of trope? Does, is this where it came from to begin with? I think so. I like. I think this is where enhance one twenty six by one seventy four comes from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love it. Can't get enough of it. And it's su- it's such like a police procedural, right? It uh, grounds him as a you know. It's like he's a cop. This is his job. It's the kind of thing he does. It takes a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And the technology is not is good, but not super helpful. And that makes it feel more plausible as well. It's kind of funny. This is the retro part of it, right? To see the, you know, the hard copies and that kind of stuff is is really funny. I do love as he's kind of sort as he's getting stuff out of Leon's apartment, we cut to Leon outside and he goes and meets with Roy. And then as they're walking into Hannibal Chu. Hannibal Chu about making eyes, you have the the people riding their bicycles by. Yeah. That scene is amazing. It also has the Rutger Hauer line, uh, men, police, men, <laughs> which I really enjoy. I, I Rutger Hauer is is uh, phenomenal in this. Oh, I mean, like, you know, man. just so just so good. I think like, you know, part of it's just that he's, you know, Danish or whatever. And so like that reads as vaguely robotic. He just does such a great job. 
Like, and just, and then like, you know, Rugger Hauer's portrayal of Roy Batty becomes an archetype in science fiction. Like the blonde haired, leather clad killer, like, you know, cyberpunk killer. He came up with that whole look. He showed up, he showed up with the haircut, died, like the whole, the whole deal. What a, what a fucking, what a fucking legend Rucker Hauer is, man. Boss, RIP. This is, was the inspiration for Harrison showing up in like, you know, t-shirt and sweatpants and being like, this is my character now. (laughs) (laughs) Man. Just showing up in athleisure. (laughs) We cut from there to Rachel hiding in Deckard's, in Deckard's elevator. And to me, I want to hit, I talked about this last week, the sound design The sound effects. Voice print identification. Your floor number, please. Decker, 97. 97, thank you. Okay. The sound of the elevator, the sound of of Decker's apartment. We'll have a link in the show notes to 12 hours of uh, ambient Decker's apartment. It's freaking amazing. Uh, We're just going to play it now. So after you hear oh. those 12 hours, you will, we'll come back to the pod. So just sit tight for the next 12 hours, and then we'll be back with the pod right after that's over. Thank you. Yes. So why is he so nervous? Why, like, why is he so scared? Because she's a killer robot. Like, she's a, she's a deadly robot. Like, he doesn't want to be, he doesn't want to have to kill her. And, but like, she's, you know, he, she's what he's trained to kill because they, they're part of kick murder squads and shit. He might, she might start kicking at any minute. I was under the impression she wasn't the kick murder squad model. But she was, uh, you know, she's the next generation, but she isn't necessarily the murder version. You don't know. You don't know when she's going to like <laughs> when the kicking is going to start, Cal. Like, but I mean, like, that's fair. Yeah. It might be a different like, kind of kick, though. Right. It could be a mental kick. Yeah. Or like a heart kick. <laughs> exactly. Like a, a kick right to the heart. Exactly. So so he tells her, you know, he's read her file. He knows what her secret memories are. He tells her that she starts crying and his whole delivery of like, OK, bad joke. You're not a replicant. Go home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, he's like, no, I'm cute. That, that to Cal's point is where like Harrison Ford has to do a bit of acting, and it 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 it, it it's, cannot be done. It can't really. It doesn't really work. It's it, we've talked about this before when we talked about Blade Runner 2049, and I just sort of have an inability to see Harrison Ford as anything but a great actor. I recognize that that is not actually true, but like in this in this moment, this is where the even for me, like sort of the scales fall away because he's just like. Okay, bad, mo- you know, bad joke. Like he's got to, he's got to do some business. <laughs> it's it's um, not good. That being said, that being said, the moment where, she, like, the moment where when he's drinking again, as soon as he has a whiskey glass in his hand, you're back. I'm back. You're in. back. I'm like, all right, that's my guy. <laughs> Whatever he wants to do from here on out, take me with you. Do you think that scene was like shot later in retakes, and it's a second unit scene, and she's not really there, or mm. like? Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't think so. I mean that that set was. Um, they said they spent a hundred and fifty thousand dollars just on that one set of his apartment. Doesn't seem that expensive now. I mean, then it was. I love. I just want to call out. I just want to call out in that in that set the blocks of his apartment, like the walls, like are these weird shapes, like these weird like tiles, tile blocks, like it's these based weird on Minecraft a Frank Lloyd. Blocks. It's it's based on a Frank Lloyd Wright house. And I'll, I'll find my, my homie uh, Nick Fisher wrote an article about it um, in an architectural magazine. So I'll, I'll find it and link it. I'm fascinated by those blocks. Incredible. They look like, you know, like sound diffusing blocks or something. Mm. Or, yeah. 
acoustic tiles. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was yeah. Sid. So it was Sid Mead that that designed the overall of of his house, and and so Sid right. Mead, we should say, is a is a futurist, and specifically, he's a futurist who is a product designer. Yeah. And his concept is design, or his expertise is designing products that will be invented in the future. He's hired by corporations to to help them to design that, and he was originally hired to design the cars, like the spinner car, which he did, and trash cars, and JF Sebastian's truck. But as he was doing it, he would draw the car on the street and in the city. And they started getting these drawings and they were like, more, do more, yeah. do house, do the apartment, do the, do the buildings. And, um, and so they ended up pulling all of that stuff in, which I think is fantastic. Amazing. Love it. Can I just ask, this is a tiny detail, but as she leaves and he's drinking and he's, the score here is amazing. Vangelis is like the, the sad Rachel theme that's playing. And he looks at the photo of Rachel and her mother, and it comes to life for a second. Yeah, I noticed that too this time. I hadn't noticed that before. That must be a that must be a final cut thing. No, where he's like, all right, the photo is going to be. No, no I, it's always I, been in there. I think it's always been there. Um, I've I've always right. at least for a long time I've, I've I've noticed that, but weird. All right, all right. So how about Pris and JF? Well, this is now we're at the Bradbury Building, so yes. we should we should talk about that. Please, have you been there? I haven't been there. I had a friend who was just there. Uh, was shooting something there, but uh, I, I want to go. We should take a field trip. I've been there. I, I went there with um, you know Blade Runner architecture specialist Nick Fisher, who I just referenced, uh, took us over to the mm-hmm. Bradbury a couple of years ago, and it is gorgeous. Like the building yeah. is amazing. I mean, it's, it's pristine. It's not trashed uh, the way that it looks the whole time. But that neighborhood, also that tunnel that they're driving through, where he's listening to Leon shooting. Holden, that tunnel is also right there. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. So it's like a very old building for LA. Like it's the 1890s or something like that. Like this building, which is just wild to think about a Los Angeles building from before the turn of the night, you know, the night, the 20th century. Mm. Was the building in disrepair when they shot there or did no. they disrepair? No, it? no they, they okay. fucked it up. They got in yeah. every night at six o'clock and they had from six o'clock till 6 a.m. And they finally discovered that they could use bits of cork. They could basically tear up cork and throw it and it looked like dirt and mud and debris and trash. Hmm. But then they had to clean it out every morning between 5 and 6 a.m. and then get the hell out. Seems stressful. Looks amazing. Looks amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So how about Pris? So she hides herself. You know, he shows up and she you know, goes to run away. She actually, that was an accidental. I always was thrown off by her smashing into his truck and putting her arm through the glass. That was not planned. She got cut up. She has scars to this day. Really? Yes. Hmm. That's wild. I didn't know that. She's terrifying. Every time they show the close up and like JF isn't looking at her and she's like, I'll fucking murder you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, she's terrifying. And she gets scarier as it goes on because she gets, she just wears crazier and crazier makeup as the, as the movie goes on. And this wasn't like Daryl Hannah's first movie, but it's like, essentially her first movie like she really hadn't done anything like this big before just great Mm. she's terrifying i also love uh so jf is alone in this building and they talk about you know no housing shortage plenty of room for everybody and this is an effortless exposition uh and there's a little bit more that that they tie back uh later but basically the concept that everybody who's healthy can leave earth if they want to people are being seduced and pushed out away from earth Mm mm-hmm 
and that's left like the dregs of humanity to, to kind of hold things down on, on Earth. Mm-hmm. Seems kind of weird, though, that it's the dregs of humanity who are doing the kind of engineering for Tyrell Corporation. Like, why doesn't he live in the pyramid? Uh, it's a good point. Maybe he just like, you know, he doesn't want to, you know, he, he doesn't have enough room in the pyramid for all his little his little friends. <laughs> you know, he doesn't want to have a million neighbors. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The pyramid thing holding a million people sort of reminds me of like when they show those illustrations of like you could fit, you know, to solve global warming, we just need to shove everyone into a cube that can fit inside Central Park or whatever. Right. I don't know if that's I don't know if that's true, but <laughs> seems like a good idea. That was all the biomass of humanity could fit into a ball inside of Central Park. Yeah. But you did have to blend everybody up. That's right. And make yeah. a giant meeple. Yeah. Which is a problem. Yeah. Although that does solve global warming. All right. So we're on the unicorn dream. So let's just get into it. <sighs> okay. So Cal, clearly the, the concept in the theatrical version, Gaff is making origami the whole time. He leaves a unicorn at the end of the film. You know she won't live, but who does? And so it, Ridley thought... It, Justify yourself, Cal. Justify yourself. Ridley thought it was obvious that Deckard was a replicant, but when it wasn't obvious to folks, he had already shot the unicorn uh, dream sequence. And apparently, because he was doing that, that, Legend already, he like had horses... A unicorn. He had a unicorn. He had a unicorn. He's like, so let's get this shit in here. No, that's a, I mean, that's just like offcuts from that movie that he put in in the later edit. That's like, yeah, you know, the, the, the original screenplay, right? The, the Hampton Fancher one doesn't have that part in. It's all stuff really added after the movie was made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, but yeah. not even during the original production. Yeah. So it's, um, it just feels shoehorned in there. Also, the fact that they didn't reshoot something specifically for that movie. Um, it's just like, huh, unicorns. I do think, I do think we have to admit, that the unicorn just feels a little spliced in. Like, you're just like, you're watching this movie, it's got a certain vibe, and then all of a sudden there's a unicorn in a forest. You're just like, okay, well, that's a, that's a different, like, there's literally no other frames of the movie that look like that. Like, like zero. Yeah, it's like shot on different film stock. It looks completely different. Hold on. Wait, wait, hold on, hold on. There's a unicorn origami at the end of the movie. Yeah. The reason for that is because there was the unicorn scene. So it's true that it was developed later in order to, to, to have this thing all be coherent. But it certainly was Ridley's intention, even at the theatrical, he wanted to have that unicorn in there. So, I mean, I, to me, it's beyond disputable that Rit, the intention of the author Did is that Deckard is a replicant. I don't think you can watch this film and say he's not a replicant, right? You can say you don't like it. Oh, well, I've watched it. I say he's not a replicant if you take out the, you know, if you watch the original theatrical cut. And has that, you know, is is Ridley on on tape saying that prior to the release of the film? You know, that that was his intention? Because it seemed like a belief that he developed later. Oh, that's... And then was like, yeah, yeah. I'm going to change the movie to make it true. I like that. No. I like the fact that, like, it was a different author. It was two Ridleys. There's Ridley prior and Ridley after. No. And they had different author. The other thing, though, the other thing I'll say is that, like, First of all, the idea of Ridley as the author of this movie is a little thin just because like there's so many different there's so many different elements of like what make this movie a classic. Like the production design of this movie is as much like the star of this movie as anything else. Yes. You know, Sid Mead is as much like the author of this movie. Like those are the like the question of whether or not repli- like Deckard is a replicant and like sort of the philosophical questions that that brings up 
aren't the most durable parts of this movie. Like, you know, like they're, they're fun for nerds to argue about, but like, it doesn't really matter in terms of like what makes this movie a classic. And so it kind of gets into like the same territory of like, is it a dream or is it not a dream? And, 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 you know, the movie doesn't, the movies doesn't, get like it maybe leans in one direction or another but it intentionally leaves that opaque yeah and and i think that was the thing right in the original theatrical release it was wait you think it's so you think it's opaque it was supposed to be ambiguous and not confirmed and then after its release ridley was like hey you know what no definitely a replicant that doesn't make the movie better it made it worse yeah i i i think it's i think it's opaque i think also i mean like i think also the fact that we're i mean first of all we're arguing about it on a podcast in 2021 second like there's 17 different cuts of the movie which all sort of advance more less strong versions of this i think it's also a more interesting movie if the question is ambiguous than if they explicitly at the end put up a title card that's like you know <laughs> and deckert comma the replicant comma <laughs> went off with his you know with who went off with rachel comma the replicant comma to have their replicant babies it's like the end of brazil right it's like it's right it was meant to be ambiguous it's good when it's ambiguous and then it like you know it doesn't. It certainly doesn't ruin the movie, but it's uh, less of an impact uh, when it's like surprise. No, he definitely was. All right. So I hear all of that. I I want to say first of all, for the record, the notion that Denny, when he did twenty forty nine, left it ambiguous, like did not explicitly say that he was. I thought was a cool choice, and it was respectful to the original theatrical. Right. 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 And I think that's fine. At the end of the day, I love the idea. I like. I'm so tired of the concept of like, what is, you know, uh, you know, a real human versus a machine and, you know, what has the real values and whatever, what's a real life that deserves respect. The whole concept of this film is he's a replicant, Batty's a replicant, Rachel's a replicant. They're all alive and they all have feelings and it's all about being caught in a machine that is leaving them living in fear and it doesn't matter whether or not you were born a human or whether you were created as a biomechanoid. Feelings matter, and we should have more empathy for each other. Do you think we should change the name of this pod to Biomechanoid Pod? <laughs> I think we talk about biomechanoids more than we talk about Dune uh, on a weekly basis. And like, it, it might open up. It might open up. We could talk about. Um, could we talk about the hit '90s TV sitcom Small Wonder? Then, if we. It expanded to biomechanoids. I don't think I. You're not familiar with Small Wonder? No. Wow. I've heard of it, but what is it? Well, it's a charming family sitcom in which a father makes a robot daughter to to play with his to play with his son. Dale says he's with you all the way, Jason. Yeah. She's a small wonder. All right, we'll take it under advisement. All right, so she's a small wonder. We'll right. leave this. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll leave this debate. Maybe circle through the final part, but I think we'll circle back. I think we hit it. I think we hit it pretty well. So now we have a, a lot of detecting happening. So the scale leads to the geneticist. I love the idea of a geneticist woman in a street cart with an electron microscope. Um, but she points him to the snake maker, Abdul bin Hassan. He goes there. Him walking down the street and like ostriches. The ostriches are great. Coming down. I would love to be just the ostrich handler in Blade Runner. <laughs> I want to know who that guy is. What he's if he's if that was the highlight of his career. 
Fantastic. And so how about Taffy Lewis's club? Taffy Lewis, I love the guy who plays Taffy Lewis. I love the drink that he gets that has like worms in it. I love the PA announcer who says, watch as she extracts the pleasures from the serpent. That's great. It's a great line read. Want to know whoever did that? Wait, 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 wait. Watch her take the pleasures from the serpent who wants corrupted men. Oh, is that the rest of the line? Yes. Wow. This is where you get the real the real biblical shit starting to come into the movie. Totally. Um, back to Harrison Ford, though, as a terrible actor. Yes. Uh, Undercover. So this this doesn't this doesn't hold up. Like, so he goes, he what? goes, he goes to talk to Joanna Cassidy and he's got this idea that he's going to pose as a theater <laughs> union rep. He's going to do this voice and it lasts for all of about two lines and then he just like can't keep it together and keep doing it. Like, no. what, what's, what's why does going he do on? a voice at all? Why does, does he do a voice at all? Is if he is either an actual detective who has a long career, or he's like a super advanced robot detective who should be good at this, and instead he does a terrible voice and has no idea what he's going to say next. It's, just, <laughs> it's hilarious, but uh, yeah, it's a little wild. It's a little wild. It, it is. And I think it's almost a moment of comic relief. Uh, but I do love when he says... Well, you, you'd be surprised what a guy go through to get a glimpse of a beautiful body. No, I wouldn't. Yeah. To me, says a lot about her character, right? Like, she's specifically Kick Murder Squad, but you could imagine she's also been subjected to being a pleasure model or whatever by whoever military people she was probably working for. Um, mm-hmm. I thought that was really, really powerful character moment. I love that. It's, it's, a, it's for, like the only, like Harrison Ford's terrible acting is exposed in all the times in which he actually has to act like someone and like either acting like he's trying to assuage Rachel's concerns or acting like he is like, he just doesn't have that gear. It's like clear <laughs> that like, he doesn't actually know running, what acting running, is. like jumping. Yeah. 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 He's just. He's way better when he's just sort of moodily drinking, but I love it when he's doing that. So it all works for me still. The violence that she does on him is amazing. Yeah. She, he almost, she, he almost dies by his skinny little tie. I mean, like how sad for him, like, which again, like sort of brings to the question is like, couldn't she kill him faster than like sort of, you know, slowly choke him to death with a skinny tie. He's a replicant. So he's more resilient. His, his throat is his throat is reinforced mm-hmm. yeah maybe but like so this is one of the things that is added in the final cut is zora's death is expanded and made more uh bloody in this in this version which i definitely noticed watching it this time they also shot joanna uh they shot they shot her head and digitally put her head onto the body right because right. the, so the wig was so bad it was really bad in the original. Mm. And all the shots on the street and like the don't, don't walk, cross now, cross now. Like all that is amazing shit. Like mm. that, that all, all of that stuff is what makes this movie phenomenal for sure. Yeah. But the scene of her running through the plate glass with the mannequins is phenomenal. The music. Yeah. The snow. Yeah. The fake snow. And the heartbeat. Mm. Love it. One more kiss, dear. So we have this classic 40s song that plays while Deckard meets with Bryant. One more kiss, dear. 
which was composed by Vangelis. I love this song. It's so great. And then Bryant just mm. looks at him and says, Gaff, you could learn from this guy. He's a goddamn one-man slaughterhouse mm-hmm. um, and tells Decker that now he also has to kill Rachel. Uh, right. That she's that he's back to four. Yeah. Because there's, yeah, she went on it, yeah. So Leon gets him and begins beating the shit out of him. And to me, this is an important moment where he says, it's painful to live in fear, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. and, and time to die. So that is like, this is to me the empathy building of these replicants who, even though you fear and hate them, you can't help but feel for them. There's a weird cut that still exists in the final cut where he goes to pull his gun out on Leon and Leon slaps it away and then punches the car and like some steam comes out. And there's like a weird like moment where the gun gets slapped away and like a three frames of the shot are missing. Huh. Like where it's, it, 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 and it's like, it just annoys the hell out of me. But love, love the love, love him getting just the shit kicked out of him by Leon before he gets saved by by Rachel. He is great at getting beat up. Yeah, that's another thing Harrison Ford's good at. He's really good at taking a punch. Like he, he's a guy you don't mind see getting the shit kicked out of him. He always looks exactly the same way when he's being punched. He does like <laughs> the rubber lips thing, but he goes. <laughs> yeah, that's a classic Harrison post punch move. Yeah. <laughs> He always looks like vaguely surprised, but like it's right, it's not right. quite believable because he gets punched so much. It's like, no, dude, yeah, you're getting punched again, <laughs> again, yeah, for sure. All right, well, we got to Slim's favorite scene in the film, which is the love scene. Oh, so so romantic. So Rachel's like the mascara and just the dark eyes are so intense. Mm-hmm. And she asks if he would come hunt her if she went north, and he said that he wouldn't, but that somebody would. Well, he doesn't say he wouldn't. He says, "No." <laughs> his like his line reading on "no" is also amazing. He's like, "Would you follow?" He's, he's like. No, it is. It's like a whale song almost more than it is like an answer. I love that. I also love in this scene, he's he's drinking from the shot glass again, which is previously established as my favorite thing Harrison Ford does. And uh, some blood. blood ends up. Oh, love that. Fucking Harrison Ford blood in the shot glass. Just give me that movie. Mm. Jesus. Her hair. All right. So now we got the hair coming down. The piano playing. song's incredible. Uh, is it? Yes. All right. People that's, listening, that's a, people listening, judge for yourselves. Okay. We'll hear it now. Yeah. Yeah. And she takes down her hair. So this is, this is a big moment for you, I guess, when she takes down her hair. It's a big deal. <laughs> so, all right. So this is obviously a very difficult scene. Um, so to me, it's this callback. They're doing this forties noir uh, kind of homage and this notion of the tough guy romance and the kiss me and, and all that stuff that was very much in vogue in the past and does not hold up very well in 2021. Again, I also maintain that the idea that he doesn't really know how to do this stuff. He's still working on figuring out what his emotions are because he is a replicant. So he has this idea of what he's supposed to say and what she's supposed to say. And he's trying to sort of push her to do it. (laughs) That's how I read the scene. It's not, it's not, there's, (laughs) there's not a consent problem because it's two robots who don't have the right protocol buffers worked out yet. (laughs) That's your, that's your headcanon for this scene. Okay. So It, 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 it literally is. It literally is. All right. Is that wrong? No, I, I have a I have a whole new theory is that after the theatrical release, 
Ridley Scott realised that Harrison's acting is real bad in a bunch of these scenes. He was like, oh, I know, he's a robot who doesn't have emotions. <laughs> Got it's it. like, let's just back that into it and it explains everything. That's the whole thing. That's good. I like that. That's that's smart. All right, anything else, Jason, you need to hit on that scene or we get it? I It doesn't, like, I get that, like, he's sort of, you know, he puts hands on her or whatever. I I mean, I think, like, I like I, for me, actually, the moment that, like, he, that sort of sells that scene is when like he goes in and she like kind of recoils and he's like no 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 he like he like wants her to understand yeah. like he puts his hands up he wants her to understand that he's trying to like make a connection here I actually do think that's a good a little good piece of business that Harrison Ford does so I'll give him I'll give him some props there mm. he's doing he's doing real acting in that moment they did shoot like a much more graphic scene and you know like her her legs around him and nudity and all that kind of stuff and and in the end they they voted to keep that out which i thought was was very smart did she have the shoulder pads on in that scene or no no no. okay that's a kind of an odd choice for the era as well to not keep it in Mm. yeah i agree yeah all right so cutting back to pris and jf her airbrushing her eyes black just absolutely amazing and roy coming in gosh you have a lot of nice toys and when he does the googly eyes like roy's being real goofy in this scene yeah it's pretty wild he's trying yeah he's activated his charm his charm slot or Buffer. whatever. Yeah. Charm module. Yeah, his charm module got kicked in. He wants to he wants to he wants to go see the guy, so he's gonna go do whatever he has to do. Yes. So speaking of visiting God, Jason, have you ever played a game of chess remotely where you had a chess board and you were like doing moves with somebody who wasn't there? No. Not a big chess guy. Cal? No. I guess it was a thing, right? Like there used to be like chess in the newspaper and bridge and like people used to do that. Yep. Yeah, you play chess by mail. You could mail your move away to someone else. Mm. Yeah, it's a whole it's a whole thing back before people had chess.com. And now what do we do? Yeah, all right. Use apps. We use apps. Okay. <laughs> Get your subscription to Chess Plus. All right, so we have the visit to Tyrell. Yeah. I love this scene. I love Tyrell. I love the fact that when he gets checkmated, he's like, okay, come up. Let's talk about this. Yeah. Like he's going to get out of this move. I like that. Like he wasn't going to invite him up. Like he's the dude's in the elevator, but like he, what was he going to do if he didn't like his move? Just send the elevator back down. Yeah. Seems weird. I love the robe that Tyrell is wearing too. Like that's like a, that's like a real, like if Kanye was doing bathrobes, like, I feel like that's what you would end up with. He's basically wearing like a quilted mattress top as a bathrobe. Like he's wearing like a waterproof mattress pad, like wrapped around him with a belt and like a collar. It looks great. He looks, he looks awesome. He's living his best life. I once ate breakfast. I'm going to tell you this important story. I once ate breakfast at the St. Regis hotel in downtown San Francisco and like a bunch of business people taking business breakfast meetings which is why I was there. I was doing a, a you know business breakfast meeting as as people like to do in San Francisco sometimes. And to an elderly couple comes in, just in their bathrobes with flip flops to like eat, to eat breakfast at the at the at the restaurant. Just like just old guy, chest hair out, like you know had come from a Schwitz and was just like, yeah, I'm gonna come here and like have myself an omelet bar. Like I don't give a hot damn. It was great. It really created a great atmosphere in the St. Regis. Good moves. Please leave that story in when you do the edit. <laughs> of course. Two things that I want to call out. One, this was Roy Batty. This was this was uh, Rutgers' first day, first scene was doing this scene. <laughs> Wild. So they got right into it. 
they originally built a separate prosthetic uh, head for him to squish, and they ended up deciding just to go with Joe Turkle's head and then just pumping blood out. Um, so that was pretty cool. Jeez. Well, they made that more. They made that more bloody in the in the final cut. Mm. Like they like the eye gouging got Digitally. extended in the final in the final cut. Mm. I think they just had had it and they but they like took it out for the theatrical because they're like, well, people don't want to see that. And I'm like, no, no, we're gonna put put more of that shit back in. So I love all of the bargaining that he's doing and Tyrell explaining why they've tried each thing and it doesn't work and it causes a mutation and the patient's dead before he got off the table and we tried that too. And there's just nothing that can be done and Tyrell really trying to kind of pull him in. But the thing that I'll call out in the original script, he kills Tyrell. Tyrell, also a replicant. And then he discovers that there's another Tyrell in stasis down below in the pyramid. And that's where he finds out the information that Deckard is also a replicant. And that's how he's able to reference Deckard by name later on in the script. Incidentally, though, if you're Tyrell and like your killer robot creation that you know is out like trying to like kill people to get into your corporation shows up in your bedroom and you're wearing your mattress quilt top robe, like you're, you know, and the guy's just like panic button. The well, like maybe you have a panic button. Maybe you, instead of saying there's nothing I can do for you, you're just fucked. <laughs> let's maybe do it. You say, like, let's go down to the lab. Let's Tuesday. Go, let's, let's-, <laughs> let's go work on this. Like, try to. Yeah, I'll just put you under and fix it. Yeah. Like, you yeah. know, like for for a genius chess player, like he really is just like, oh, no, sorry, my guy, you're just fucked. I guess uh, you'll just go back. Good luck. You'll just you'll just leave now. No problem. No hard feelings. <laughs> That's amazing. And, for, and he's a genius, but he didn't foresee this in any way and build in any kind of fail safe that would stop him from being murdered. Right. Right. Oh. All right. So let's see. Deckard versus Pris. So now we're, we're racing to the conclusion here. Deckard in the building, in the Bradbury building, gorgeous. Pris's eyes rolling back in her head. And then that slow pacing, him walking across, there's a shot that is like a Renaissance painting with like yes. all of the dolls and stuff and, and her. And there's light on her. Yeah, that looks amazing. It looks amazing. Like the way that set is dressed looks phenomenal. Mm. And like, I guess it's a fair point that I think Dale raised in chat, which is like, we talked about Pris being terrifying. And like she's actually not a great fighter. Like her her <laughs> fighting move is to like do like a floor routine for like the Olympics. Uh-huh. Which, you know, there may be more there may be more direct ways to kill a person than trying to attempt right. like some Simone Biles shit. Um <laughs> but I think just the way like the the way she looks is awesome. Like she just looks like that she gets the fright wig and like, you know, which is also kind of a weird cut because her hair goes from being very normal to she attacks big, him and the hair all hair. goes like big on end. <laughs> which I don't exactly know. That's a it's a very humid building. That was exactly. Yeah. yeah. As soon as she starts fighting, the humidity kicks up. Well, she said that Harrison insisted that she actually hit him and that she actually hold his nose. When she holds him by the nose, that she actually did it and that, like, his nose was bleeding and, like, she was feeling terrible. In the end, it was a guy that was in an outfit that had to do 15 back handsprings um, in order to do it. Huh. Interesting. But I did feel like in the final cut, the flopping was, like, too long. It's, it's too much. 19 seconds. Yeah. It's 19 seconds of, of Pris flopping. Too much. I'm not surprised that the nostril pull is actual actual nostril because she's really clearly pretty much up in his brains right there mm. i do feel i do feel from like i love this movie and i like this is you know uh, an all-star movie for me i did feel the third act 
dragged a little bit when I was watching it this time. Like this, that like I, I love all the stuff with Roy at the end, but like this, th- everything from when he goes to confront Tyrell through Tears in the Rain, which is obviously a standout. Like it just felt like I know where we're going. Can we just get there a little quicker? It the pacing sort of bugged me mm. a bit more, which I thought of because you said the thing about the thrashing. It just seems to slow down a little bit as we get closer to the end. Mm. I don't know if anyone else felt that way. Cow. Yeah, it, it does kind of the like that that whole scene and maybe the the Tyrell scene as well, but definitely the scene once they get back to the building is it it's just long. Um I wonder if it feels that way if you're watching it for the first time now or right. or right. how much that's influenced by how good the rooftop scene is and we're like, yeah, yeah, there's going to be some punching and Harrison will flap his jowls around and then eventually we'll get to the good bit at the end. Um versus maybe it is just a little bit too long. Yeah. Uh, and it just does drag it, it is 30 minutes for the final from the time he goes in to to be with pris to the end of the film is 30 minutes and in that respect wow. it's similar to alien right that of this long last kind of chasing and yeah, running yeah, around yeah. And, and all of that so that to me there was a big reflection of of alien pacing in this which was fun to discover i'd never noticed that before until watching them back to back do you feel like it keeps the tension up the whole time or does it feel overly long i'm good with well, it. it i don't have any problem with it i love it this time it felt long to me i do think now that you mentioned the alien thing it's two hours and two minutes like it's not that long yeah, I may just have no attention span anymore. But like the <laughs> the the thing about Alien that I liked was that in sequence of Alien, like he talks about in the commentary how they show her going all the way to the escape shuttle and then she has to go all the way back and then she has to go all the way back again. And they wanted to shorten that. Um, and he's like, no, 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 we got to show all the space she has to tra- traverse. And similarly, in his like sort of running from Roy, they spend a lot of time just establishing the physical space that they're working through, like busting through walls and like kind of, you know, like it, it's, it's, it really expands like the concept of what this, the set is that you're, that you're in. But I did feel it took a long time to get where we were going. When we have the rooftop scene, is the implication that Roy had planned that for some amount of time or that, no. you know, like he came to that conclusion at the end of half an hour of uh, kind of running through the building. Oh, Ridley? Oh, Roy. Yeah. I think Roy, I think Roy just comes to the decision not to let him die, like right the, at the moment. I think at the moment. Oh yeah. Well, in the in the, I think it is. It's very specifically. It's seeing him dangling and right. on the verge of death, watching him in that in that space, and the fact that he fought again. If you have the idea that he's a that Roy knows that he's a replicant because he had access to the Tyrell files. And he says to him specifically, he says, he refers to him as a little man and says, aren't you the good man? Um, ironically, this is this is Roy kind of letting on that he knows what he is. So I think from that perspective, there's like some, some kinship there as well. But it also, for me, works, I, I, even if he's not a replicant, it works for Roy as like, why do I have to kill you? Like I, I have lived and I've burned brightly. Yeah, uh, to me, that's what that line's getting at. It's the, uh, you know, the, he might not be real, but he's had a full life and all of these memories and had all these unique experiences. Um, and all Harrison Ford does is bum around in LA killing people. Mm. Um, so not necessarily an you know implication that he knows he's a replicant, but just that he's lived. Mm. Obviously what happens is that Harrison Ford's replicant beacon goes off when he's dangling from the building and that, and Roy hears it and he can't kill a fellow robot. And so he, he picks him up. No, it's the look. It's it's the look in his eyes. It's not anything else than that. It it is about human connection 
And the fact that they're replicants does not make them not human. That's the key point. They're, they are both replicants and human. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tenhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. Time to die. He wants Deckard to know that he had a life, that he had unique memories and that, you know, that his life was valuable. He realizes he's about to die and he wants to impart that. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that empathy there. Yeah, it's less that he decides not to kill him and more that he wants somebody to, you know, to talk to. Remember him. And to remember him, yeah. Mm. His legacy. Yeah. Witness me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was also his idea, Rutger's idea to have the dove they shot it both with and without the dove. Rutger actually jumped across the buildings because the stunt man had crashed and like gotten injured. Um, wow. And the the buildings were actually on wheels, so they pulled them a little bit closer. And then he jumped across in one perfect shot. And they were shooting. This is the last night of production on the film. And the producers, Bud Yorkin and whatever the other guy's name was, they were like dying to shut it down to try and save money. And as soon as the light was coming up for the day, they were excited because they couldn't shoot anymore. They literally cut the building into pieces and moved the building into a covered set area in a soundstage where they could then keep shooting. And that's when Rutger came up with that final Tannheiser gate and and all those amazing pieces. Incredible. Yeah. Good job, Rutger Hauer. Really, really the MVP of this whole production. Agree. Gaff says, you've done a man's job, sir. Mm-hmm. Like, you take that as being, like, a big tell. Very clearly. Okay. All right, anything else? I love the handheld shots of him going in and out of his apartment, finding Rachel in his apartment. Jason, do you always sleep with a death shroud with a sheet over your face? Like, Yeah, I mean, that's just, like, how I was raised. <laughs> so it's the tradition in my family is just be shrouded to sleep well. You know, shroud, sh- shroud at night. Sleep tight is what I was told. <laughs> Final thoughts on Blade Runner and and rating and rating out of five stars. Cal, as our guest, you know it's an amazing, iconic movie, and who knows what the kind of world of sci-fi cinema would be without it. It's just like such a seminal work. It's a shame that it's been uh, you know like so cruelly edited for all of these versions. One day we'll get the perfect cut, mm. which makes sense, and he's no longer clearly a replicant. Um, but an amazing movie, and I think uh, you know that that detail doesn't doesn't really matter in the end um, because we have that almost final scene with Roy Batty. Mm-hmm. Maybe the movie would be better without anything that happens after that. Mm. But the like the the gaff piece, that interaction is kind of needed to wrap it up. It's a it's an amazing movie, and it still holds up now. What like forty years later? Mm. Yeah, uh, four stars, five stars out of five. Probably five out of five. Bang. You know, it's a rare, rare movie. Boom. Five banger. Jason. 
Yeah, this is a. I mean, this is a five star movie. I actually, as I was starting to watch it, I was thinking about like, why isn't this movie on my like top four in Letterbox? Like, this is clearly like a movie that's just more important to me than almost any other movie I could name. And it, it just like there's the it's just like sort of baked into you know we made a lot of fun of it as we went along like certain choices that don't make sense but it's just baked into what I have grown to love about movies generally like it's like was a an awakening for me that like oh like there's this like you could spend your whole life just studying this one movie and it's just you know an eternal masterpiece for me so I was glad to be able to watch it again for this podcast and I, I like being able to see it any anytime I can you're welcome you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Five stars. Thank, thank you for giving it to me. Five stars. This is a perfect 1010 movie. Um, even though some of the pacing is slow, I absolutely love it. It does everything. Uh, it does everything so well. And the marriage of cinematography and production design and music editing it all it, it's just it's phenomenal mm -hmm. so a couple of quick pieces of trivia before we we finish off here um so first one this movie was doa until alan ladd laddie stepped in and raised the 14 million to get this movie made um so i love it laddie there's a documentary i think about him that that we may have to cover at some point on this pod mm -hmm. but just a, a hero of so many of our films other Deckards. So Hampton Fancher wrote this film for Robert Mitchum as Deckard. That's terrible. And, and he was like, Robert Mitchum was still young enough in 1981 to be able to shoot this movie. Like, no, he was not. That's, that's terrible. <laughs> okay. That's real. So that's real bad. So Nick Nolte, Burt Reynolds, Al Pacino. Oh my God. Those are all terrible. Jason, what about give us, Jason, give us what a line about, read, please. Please give us any Pacino line read. What a, I can't. I mean, I just don't even know what that. What I don't even know what that would look like. Can you imagine, like, just Al Pacino, just like blowing through, like they don't advertise for what I do in the newspaper, like that, just like absolutely, just fucking, just blowing the walls off this movie. Uh, what a nightmare. What about Christopher Reeves as a? Whoa. As a, as 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 Harris as a uh, Deckard, what do you think about that? I mean, I think he's too he is too good to be in this film. Are you kidding? He's too good. He's too noble. Christopher Reeve. He's too noble. Uh, I thought about it today because somebody posted in the seventy millimeter uh, Discord. Somebody posted somewhere in time, which is a movie that I loved. But he was so typecast as Superman, there was no way he could do pretty much anything else. Mm. Too good. It'd be a good move. It'd be a good. I'd like to see it. Well, the almost well, you know who here, here you know who would be good at here another good one. Uh, uh, Jimmy Khan could have been mm. Decker. That would have been that would have been a good that would have been a good version of Blade Runner. Yeah, agree. Well, the all the closest almost cast so much so they spent months with him, and he was actually even beginning to be represented as Deckard in the storyboards. Dustin Hoffman. Oh my God! Come on, <laughs> I don't think that, that works. works. Doesn't that's work. terrible. All right. You no, know, I think they they ended up in a good place. Yeah. yeah, agree. All right. So, Cal, who would Tilda Swinton play? <sighs> Roy Batty, I guess. Oh wow! Oh my God! Woo. Woo. Whoa! Oh my God! Holy shit! I gotta go lie down. <laughs> uh, you know, but if that position was taken, then I'm gonna guess Zora. I'll be in my bunk. Wow. Uh, <laughs> Good night. Thank, thank you, everybody. Good night. That's pretty strong. I really never thought about Roy Batty. 
That's great. That's a great answer. I was going to go with Terrell. Me too. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. I could easily imagine her in that robe. But now. Oh, my God. Roy. I don't know. I don't know if I can go on. No, no. That's it. That's it. All right. uh, Here we go. Let's get into some letters and some voicemail. Our first letter comes from Blake Paulson. And the subject line is music talk. Hello, Dune Pod. I enjoyed the music talk in your Batman episode and thought I should share a Dune nugget you might appreciate. I remember a discussion about Dune-inspired music a while back and have another one for you. The second track on Tool's 2019 album is Litany Contra La Pour, which Google Translate says is French for Litany Against Fear. Mm. I learned just enough French in high school to suspect and confirm it. Also, that album makes me think of Fremen walking on sand, especially after seeing a video of people trying to dance along with it at Burning Man. It wasn't just the spice. Tool must know what they're doing, but the rhythm comes across as completely random. Enjoying the podcast, Blake. That that makes just complete sense. Like, if there ever was going to be... Like, I'm surprised that we haven't bumped into Tool sooner on this podcast because I just feel like... Mm. Dune is like a bat signal for like math rock fans like that. You're, you're definitely sending up a vibe when you're talking about a space worm movie for sure. So that makes sense. That story checks out. Absolutely. Do we have any tool fans? Do we have any tool fans in the discord tonight? Like, uh, has anybody heard this 2019 litany against fear? Any lateral eye out there? Give us a shout out while we listen to our man, Corey here. Here's our only voicemail for the night. H, Jason, Doompod, what is up? I don't even know who the host is. Is it a surprise uh, guest host with you guys for Blade Runner? Anyway, I love Blade Runner. That's probably, duh, no doy. But, uh, yeah, so there's not really much for me, to, I guess, probably to add to the Blade Runner conversation. I am maybe in the minority that I do like the voiceover uh, a lot. I did, when I did my rewatch, though, I rewatched the uh, quote-unquote final cut. And it was gorgeous, and it's great, and I, I have no complaints about it at all. One thing I do want to talk about, I guess, is cyberpunk, right? Like Blade Runners, an early mm-hmm. cyberpunk film. Mm. Um, so in that vein of you guys covering cyberpunk films, I recommend Lawnmower Man. Oof. I also recommend Johnny Mnemonic, obviously, Ugh. and Free Jack. You guys definitely need to get on these since Jason even said we're Yikes. pretty much turning this into a Gen X podcast at this point. So those <laughs> movies just have to be covered. I think they were all just despised when they came out. But I honestly, truly believe they're worth a revisit. I'm no stranger to being accused of liking terrible movies. So take that with a grain of salt. Anyway, I did recently watch Lawnmower Man, and it was like a gajillion times better than I thought it was. Those wackadoo uh, VR sex scenes are out of this <laughs> world, and uh, oh, yeah. I think I uh, would love to hear you guys talk about that. But anyway, um, I'm sure I'm going to totally love this uh, episode, just like I did the Alien one. So keep up the great work. All right. Love you guys. Bye. It's kind of amazing that the sex scenes from Lawnmower Man are still like the killer app of VR, like 40 <laughs> years later. Like, 
like VR has made essentially no progress. Like since <laughs> since that had becoming more relevant to people's lives since since Lawnmower Man. But keep keep spending money on it. I'm sure it'll work. I'm sure it'll work out eventually. That's bleak. Um, that is bleak. Great to hear from Corey. Uh, always appreciate him writing in. I like that so many people, including our guest Cal and our voicemailer Corey, had these you know counter narrative takes on Blade Runner. Like how you know going basically all but saying that the theatrical release had it right. Ridley Scott, you're a hack. You should have listened to the producers, put the happy ending back in, put the voiceover back in. Wow. He's not a robot. Uh, you know? Yeah, let's do it. A decade ago, I would have said, oh, Ridley Scott's not a hack. But, you know, uh, you know, time has time has disagreed with that, maybe. Yeah, I, it's not been good recently. I'll just say that. I, You know, again, having just watched Prometheus and Covenant and Raised by Wolves, it's it's not real good. Yeah, but uh, you know, Blade Runner has that amazing uh, the the design, right? Like mm, yeah. the set design, the outfits, the world. That's what that's what I ended up think, having done. Like just to provide a concluding thought on the Ridley Scott doubleheader, I think what Ridley Scott with Alien and Blade Runner really it really shows is how much he benefited by having an amazing team around him of just like phenomenal artists and like Giger and like Oban and all the folks who helped make Dalian and like Sid Mead and like you know all the folks who helped make you know Vangelis all the folks who helped make Blade Runner and like Ridley Scott like that's like why he's so high variance it's like if he doesn't have like all of those pieces like it really he can really end up just making a schlocky movie that like is is unremarkable um he needs he needs the full team to create that to create that full world do you think it's also that his best movies were made at a time when people didn't believe that he could make great movies and so we're pushing back on everything he did yeah maybe you know whereas now in the like 2010s everyone says do whatever you want, Ridley. You're a genius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make this alien prequel with a terrible story that makes no sense and the characters are awful. Yeah. Yes. Cal, we're aligned. Yeah. We're aligned. We did it. Yeah. We achieved it. In the end, we came together. Yes. <laughs> it's the friends we made along the way. All right, Cal, uh, what do you have to plug? What are you excited about? What's going on? Anything you're looking forward to? Um, I'm excited about eventually going to a cinema again and seeing a movie, you know, with the uh, on a big screen with other people. Yes. You know, breathing their filthy germs on me. And it sounds <laughs> like uh, it's going to be in the San Francisco IMAX. It's going to be our germs. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be our germs. Beautiful. Perfect. This is, uh, it's been so long and it's... It's uh, such a, you know, you can definitely experience and enjoy cinema at home. Yes. Right? Like you can watch it on your laptop in bed and it's still, you know, <laughs> still have an incredible impact. Uh, but there's nothing like, you know, seeing it on a, on a gigantic screen surrounded by your friends. Absolutely. Well, we are going to do that. And, and I will just say, folks, start hitting us up. Uh, hit us up on Twitter. Hit us up on Discord. Hit us up on Instagram. Let us know if you are fired up about coming to see this movie with us. On preview night, Thursday, October 21st. Dune Pod premiere, super spreader event. <laughs> Come join us. It's time. Yeah. It's all been leading to this. You have to be vaxxed. You have to be vaxxed and everyone's going to be wearing masks. <laughs> and that's it for this episode of Dune Pod. I want to thank Jason and Cal for a controversial and fun conversation. Don't forget... Next week, Twitter co-founder Biz Stone joins us to give up Jason's secrets and watch the most critically acclaimed film of the classic series, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. 
If you're enjoying this podcast, join our Discord server where you can hang out with us whenever you want. A link is in the show notes. You can find our full movie set list on Letterboxd. And if you want to support them by upgrading to pro or patron status, use promo code DUNEPOD at checkout to save 20%. DUNEPOD is a Tape Deck Podcast John, a production of H Industries. Our artwork is by Catcher, and our theme music was composed by Toby Forsman of Whipsong Music. The episode was produced and edited by me, H. Thanks for listening. We'll see everybody next week. <laughs>